Today's reading is taken from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 13 to 18. And for Pew Bibles, it's on page 122. So that's Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 13 to 18. And in this passage, we read about God giving the law to Moses. And this is what the Lord says. Do not defraud your neighbors or rob them. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother or sister in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you will not share in the guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Les. Brought my Bible of authority today and a random piece of brick. Last weekend was my Sunday off after Easter and I um, got to visit the Natural History Museum in Oxford and they've currently got this, they might always have it, I don't know, but certainly currently they've got this collection of rocks and minerals, uh, many of which are specimens that you can touch and my favorite one was this bad boy which is 71 kilograms of meteoric iron that is 4.5 billion years old. That's as old as the Earth. And I could touch it. And it crashed into China in the year 1516. I don't know how they knew that, but that's what the, the little plaque said. And, um, and as soon as I'm there, sort of touching this random piece, piece of black rock that is the oldest thing by far in the whole museum, my mind is just catapulted into those big questions, those big sort of existential questions of what are we doing with these, this, this blink of life that we have, these short years that we have together? What is, what is it deeply all about? What must we never lose sight of in the midst of it? That is what we're going to be thinking a bit about today. It's billed as a vision talk. Um, I fear it may be a sort of reminder of the blazingly obvious sort of talk, um, but we'll have a lot of fun along the way. We're going to start with a little quiz. So um, I've gone to great lengths to put this together, visiting landmarks surrounded uh, in scaffolding. Um, and the, qu the, the question is, does anyone know what is covered in scaffolding there? I'll give you just 10 seconds. And then... If you are confident enough to 
potentially make a fool of yourself by shouting out the answer, I invite you to do so now. Big Ben, we got it. There it is. Not bad, not bad. Let's do another one. What's that? Nelson's column. That was a bit easier. I feel like you got that straight away. Okay. Number three of four. Ooh, trickier. It's not Grenfell Tower. There's a clue in the rap. 2003, I think this, um, this one was there. Anyone want to venture a guess? Selfridges, Birmingham. If that means the ball ring in Birmingham, then you'd be absolutely correct. Boom, look at that. Paul Swan. Let's give Paul Swan a clap. You've got one chance to beat him. Last question, here we go. This one. St. Helens, the best of the lot. Look at that. It is quite an impressive scaffold tower. I haven't been up it yet, but I'm looking forward to There is so much going on right now within the, the thing that is All Saints. We've got the scaffolding going on, the stone repairs. We've got plans to become a, a resourcing church. We've got coffee supplies that need reordering, heating bills, car parking issues. We have safeguarding forms and budgets and spreadsheets and forecasts and replacing PA equipment and electing the PCC and designing magazines and recruiting volunteers and sorting out email signups and the lot. And if you're anything like me from where, well, from where I'm sat, it's a bit overwhelming and uh, exhausting perhaps, a little bewildering sometimes. What is it all deeply about? What is it that we must never lose sight of in the midst of it? Underneath the scaffolding, what is it essentially that is taking shape or that needs to be taking shape? What is fundamental to our vision? I remember asking a, a vicar friend of mine, um, you know, what's the vision? Do you have a vision document or something like that in your church? And he looked at me and he paused and he said, yes, we've got the Bible. <laughs> And he had a good point, because um, we, with this right here, we are the inheritors of something utterly amazing. It's the, the testimony of a people, a history of God's involvement with them, with some remarkable scenes and passages and events along the way, a history of God's involvement with a lot of people across a long time. But it is more than a little confusing. I think you'll agree, especially to our limited attention spans of the 21st century, malformed by Twitter and uh, the like. A lot of weird names, a lot of weird places, acting out in a history that we struggle to understand, let alone understand exactly how the text came to be written and then remembered and, and formed into the Bible I value all of that, those questions. We had a whole year looking at some of them, and it was um, a year well spent, I think. But what is it deeply all about? When we're reading this, what must we never lose sight of? Thankfully, someone asked Jesus a very similar question in Matthew 22. And um, they said, what is it deeply all about? And for once, thankfully, he gave a straightforward answer. And um, we'll get to the answer in a minute, but we, we know that he was 
deliberately, consciously boiling it down for us to the essentials. This is just a few days before his death. And he said, um, at the end of his answer, we know that he was deliberately boiling it down, because at the end of his answer, he said, and on this hangs all of the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the, the whole of the Hebrew Bible, the whole of the, the Old Testament as we know it. He's saying that, that this, this is the litmus test for whether we're in line with the truth, with the heartbeat of this whole tradition, this whole movement of God's involvement with humanity. Anthropologically speaking, this whole movement started back in ancient Egypt with a caste, a slave caste of people who, through a whole remarkable series of events, found themselves emancipated, liberated out of, from under the hand of their Egyptian oppressors and led out into the desert, led by a chap called Moses. And it seems that throughout all of the miserable generations, some 400 years in Egypt, these, these people, this, this ethnic group, this sort of undercaste, had managed to cling on to this notion that God had made, their God had made some big promises to one of their forefathers called Abraham. Perhaps that was why they so willingly downed tools and, and walked off after Moses. Perhaps they were just so desperate. And they were accompanied along the way by a whole ragtag group of nobodies who thought we might as well have this shot at nothing. It's better than the life we're leaving behind in Egypt. It's a, it's a seriously unimpressive bunch of people who make their way out into the desert. But then they find themselves at the foot of a mountain. And the mountain is covered with thick clouds, not unlike today. And, and out of the, the fiery clouds comes this voice. And it says something like, Behold, I am the Lord your God. I have called you out of Egypt. I, I've, drawn, I've led you out of Egypt from the, the, hands, the house of slavery. And now you're to be something different on the face of this earth. The passage that we read, that Les read, if you back up a bit, it has this sort of big intro sentence. And God says, I am holy. You are to be holy. You're to be different. That is a big, that is a big deal. And then this, from, that, that, from that moment, this commissioning, this vocation that they receive to be different, becomes comes this, this whole system of being different. There's this strict faithfulness to the one God. So many rules, so many details on exactly how they're to go about worshipping this God. There's this institution called Sabbath, because these, these, these people are decidedly not economic units anymore. They're living into a different kind of identity, a different sort of truth about who they are. And there's loads more rules on details of how they're supposed to go about living the stuff of everyday morality. I want you to be my people. So it's like my sort of people. I want you to be like me, to reflect me. That's the, the calling on the people of God. And so many of their rules and details and institutions and shape of their fledgling prototype society. So much of it is rooted in this, this developing understanding, this developing idea that what human beings are is this mysterious embodiment of, of something of the image of God. We were made in the image of God. Each and every human being carries this image. 
It's such an important idea, making sense of so much of this vision document that is the Bible. We each carry the image of God. We just do. It's who we are. There's nothing we can do about it. It's a bit like a pound coin. No matter how scratched or dirty, messed up that pound coin gets, it still has this, the same innate value of a whole pound. No matter how battered we are by life, no matter how bruised, blind, twisted, scarred, or lost we might have become, every single human being still carries this innate, infinite value. It's derived straight from the source himself. That's a powerful idea. It's quite a different truth to order your life around. So, in amongst all the funny names, the funny people, the funny places, the hard-to-understand history, there's a couple of really key foundational ideas to, to not miss, that the people of God are called to be something different on the face of the earth, and that difference is in no small part rooted in this, this idea that actually who we are are bearers of something of God's image. Their difference was not a weirdness for the sake of it. Their difference was to be a recovery of the truth of things, a recovery of what it means to be truly human. Now, hands up who was alive in 1975. April 1975, there's a man called Gary. Gary um, Dahl, just like Roll Dahl, but this was Gary. And Gary's in a bar somewhere in California, and he's listening to his friends whinge about their pets. And, you know, oh, it's just terrible, you know, the vet bills that come in, and oh, we have to clean them out or take them for walks, or um, oh, they poo everywhere, you know. It's hearing all of this stuff, that, that, that they die, and we go through this grief cycle um, every so often, and the kids, oh, it's just terrible. And he's listening to all of this, and he's coming up with an idea for the perfect pet. And it's a pet rock. And I don't know, and it became a thing. So Gary, being a man after my own heart, took his stupid idea very seriously. And he wrote up a, a whole little guidebook for, um, what's it called? The Care and Training of Your Pet Rock. And it's full of um, uh, brilliance brilliant humor. Uh, but it came a thing, this, this, this pet. Did anyone remember? Anyone heard of pet rock? Did anyone have a pet rock? Yes! We've got a pet rock in the house, Deb. Let's give her a clap. I should have got you to bring it. I, I, um, you can still buy them, apparently. I didn't, because I thought I could get um, a random piece of rock out of my garden. It would have the same pedigree value as um, an official pet rock, which was just a, a random pebble, apparently, off a beach in Mexico uh, that came packaged with a bit of straw around it and made old Gary Dahl a millionaire. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll, I'll just give you a bit of the guidebook because it is so good. There was instructions, um, and it said you, you can train your pet rock uh, quite easily. We'll give it a little go. It said... Some of the instructions were really easy to, um, to get down with your pet rock. Sit. 
That's there. Um, what was the other one? Stay. Yeah, it's there. Rollover, it needed a bit of bit more. It was, you could do rollover, but it needed a bit more help from the owner on that one. So, right, rollover, there we are. It's done it. Attack was, was one that they, it, it warned about because it really does work and it can be quite ferocious. Again, it needs a bit of help from the owner to get that one down. But that was the, the pet rock phenomenon. I'm guessing that when those boxes arrived, that there were some people who, um, I, I hope most people just got with the joke of the whole thing, but there were some people who uh, entered into a unnaturally close relationship with a piece of stone. They invested a bit uh, bizarrely in a pebble off a beach in Mexico. I'm no geologist, but I wonder if a healthier relationship with rocks is that when we instead of you know, obsessing about an imaginary pet that is a rock, but rather it's when we touch an asteroid and it propels us into all sorts of wonder about the actual thingness of things, the actual mystery of our existence. When it comes to our relationship with this thing that we call all saints, which one is it for you? Is all of this church stuff like a, um, you know, like the comfortable little delusions of, of pet rocks? This little sort of imaginary world that we, we get to enter into and block out some of the more complicated world out there for a little bit? I hope not. Or is it that as we come into contact with the thingness of the thing that is the church in the world, actually we might be catapulted up into wonder and truth and a realism like never before, something we wouldn't have, some place we wouldn't have gone without this thing, this structure that is the church. So let's talk about our scaffolding. And we have a photo here of a rather excited Stella. And she's excited because the scaffolders have arrived on site. And this is Jay and this is John. And over the next six weeks, they were to build what you see on the left. The Harris fencing was no more, and the mighty St. Helens scaffolding was in place. And um, someone remarked in the office just last week, because the stone, so six weeks to build all that, and now the stonemasons are on site as well. And someone remarked in the office how pleasant it was to now hear the chink, chink, chink of the stonemasons instead of the pneumatic drills of the scaffolders, which was a lovely thought. You know, imagine this is the sound that has been heard for hundreds and hundreds of years, same sound as the stone of St. Helens is being repaired. And I hadn't even tuned into this chink, chink, chink until, um, until they sort of drew my attention to it. And it got me thinking, on any of these projects, no matter how spectacular and impressive and shiny the scaffolding structure is, it's not about the scaffold. It's about what's taking shape underneath. The scaffold is literally a prop that enables something of lasting significance to take form. When it comes to our life together, there is the scaffolding, and there is something of enduring value that's taking shape. The various institutions and rhythms and systems that make up the church, the functional stuff 
of just being community with one another. It's scaffolding. And that includes the building, which is where my analogy breaks down and becomes a little bit too confusing, perhaps. But keep with me, keep with me. Sometimes we can fall in love with all of the scaffolding. We can form unnaturally close attachments to things like the system, the institution, the rhythm, our place on a rotor, our favorite song, a formula of words, whatever it is. So much so that we can be in danger of missing the point. And my prayer is that we wouldn't so much fall in love with all the scaffolding, but that we would fall in love with people. Because, back to Matthew 22, when they went to Jesus and they asked him, what is it all about? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus' straightforward answer was to quote two verses. The first was Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And the other one was from Leviticus 19 and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. These are, the, these are the inseparable two things. These are two sides of the same coin. Why? Because you are made in the image of God. And so is she. And so are they. You can't love God and not love people. You can have a go, but you're kidding yourself. And if you were hearing echoes from the book of James, as Les read from Leviticus 19, you'd be right. You're paying attention to some of the teaching we've had. This chapter, this Leviticus 19 chapter, that spells out what it is to love your neighbor. It's kind of programmatic for James. It's so foundational, this loving God, loving others as a way of loving God and making real on some of this stuff. Because... This whole inheritance that we are part of, it's all about the truth of this love at the heart of the universe. This is the God who is love, who loves you so much that he's prepared to die for you, that who actually does die for you in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the God who is inviting you into this way of love, into this great love. And the context of this love is the world. It's right in front of you, in each of the faces of the likely many thousands of people that you will have some level of personal interaction with this year. They don't need you to be a genius theologian. They need you to be love. So at the deepest level, all of this, it's not about the databases and the email signups and the magazines and the building projects and whatever else. It's about love. It's about finding out somehow that we are loved, letting that truth sink a bit deeper in. It's about learning how to love other people a bit better. Everything else, it's scaffolding for love. All our arrangements and our systems and our rotors, scaffolding for our love. All our resourcing church strategies, it's scaffolding for our love. And where the scaffolding is not doing such a good job of supporting the love, of helping friendships to happen, of shaping us into more lovely versions of ourselves, then it's a waste of time. It's worse than a waste of time, and we've got to do something about it. 
1 Corinthians 13, Paul says it a bit like this. Without love, we are nothing but noisy pneumatic scaffolding drills. The vision is love, a community that connects us with God's love, a community that incubates pulsating hearts that beat in time with this great love. It's about a movement of love that has wonderful implications, not just for each other in the room, but for the whole world out there, that we are the many thousands that we will collectively come in contact with, that we will interact with over the next month. So we're talking about a Jesus-style love, which is uh, my way of getting this rather epic photo onto my PowerPoint. And I want to just say two quick things as we end. Rather than, you know, listing off all our scaffolding plans for the year or anything like that, actually, let's just zone in on the wisdom of love. And let's try and learn a couple of things about what Let's kind of skill up and a couple of things about the stuff that it's really all about. So the first thing I want to point of clarification or definition or encouragement into this Jesus-style love is that love goes first. Love takes the initiative. Catherine, whilst we were still far off, that's when Christ came to meet us. Christ died for us when we were still sinners. So Monday... Monday just gone, the Monday morning after the Masters. And me and Laura are having, let's say, a, um, one of those frosty 24-hour periods. I hesitate to share this because the last time I said something like this, I got a really nice meal bought for us and, and three offers of, of people to pray. Um, we're okay, uh, normal. Um, but she didn't get a chance to vet my talk, so I'm going to go for it this morning. And... <laughs> So we're having this frosty 24, and it might have something to do with the fact that on the Sunday night before, I came downstairs, while she was still battling with the three overly tired, sleep-resistant children, I um, came downstairs and I turned on the golf. <laughs> and, um, I mean, how was I to know that the whaling wasn't part of some game? And, uh, and it, was, it was the last round of, of the Masters, and I don't watch any golf the rest of the time of the year, but I, I like watching the Masters. And... Um, anyway, breakfast the next morning, um, it was clear that the, uh, the frost, the temperature around the table, it was clear that the frost hadn't quite melted yet, and so we carried on with the day. Um, but then, about 11 o'clock, I received a text message, and it just said this, it said nothing else other than this, just to say, I love you, and you're my best friend. And that, my friends, is a game changer. All of the righteous indignation and defending my side of things, and it's just, boof, suddenly it's gone. It's the aroma of Christ. It's the love that goes first, that crosses the bridge, even towards idiots like me, that extends forgiveness first. You should try it. You should try it more often. I should try it more often. Matthew 18. It's that bit about, um, you know, when there's an issue between you and a brother, what's to happen? You might not have noticed this, but let's read it together because there's an important thing to notice. Matthew 18, verse 1. 
verse 15. Like real bread and butter stuff on, on how to deal with the inevitable issues and the disappointments and the frictions within community. And it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. His fault. The, the, the initiative rests with you. It's not, they, do you know what they did to me? They did this to me and I'm just going to wait here until they come and apologize. No. The instruction, the invitation, the encouragement, the strong nudge from Jesus is for you to go and take the initiative, to go and do a Jesus game changer move on that whole situation. Love goes first. Let's be the first to stop demanding our rights or whatever else, but be the first to forgive. The first to reach out. Okay, secondly, love wants what is actually best. And that sounds like the most obvious thing. But the reality is that people are really awkward sometimes. People disappoint us in ways that often really hurt. People are difficult and frustrating and annoying. And, um, and it's not always obvious, is it, like how to, how to love someone. There are plenty of dilemmas where you just, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be in this situation. I don't know how to react to what has just happened. Um, and one little sort of mental move that I've found useful in sort of checking me out of my knee-jerk, um, idiotic responses um, is what I call the father's heart test. And it's nothing um, intensely spiritual. It's literally, in this situation, you know, this person has just frustrated my whatever, got in my way of, of my plans, or suddenly there's this problem in the road in front of me. The father's heart test for me is this little move where I'd be like, if I was their dad, if I was actually their dad, how would I, how would I be towards them? Because this acting in someone's genuine best interest, in like deeply seeking simply their flourishing, comes naturally to a, from a parent to their kid. It's just sort of how it is. And so just making that mental move, imagining I was this person's father, helps me check the state of my own heart. What's going on? Am I just annoyed that my project is being frustrated and changed? And, or actually, am I looking for their best interest. That doesn't mean you always bow down and just you know, put out the red carpet for whatever dysfunctional behavior they want to carry on. A, father, a good father would not do that. A good father would be looking to lovingly challenge, to nurture, to do whatever it takes, in fact, for that person to flourish into the fullness of who God's made them to be. It comes back to that, that line I said a few weeks ago, observation without love is sin. And then two weeks ago, someone quoted that at me. And I was delighted that they did so. I wasn't delighted that they needed to do so. <laughs> um, but I was delighted that they did so because it was the community functioning to encourage me into a more lovely, more loving version of who God is calling me to be. I'm going to leave you with one reflective question. And sometimes, this might be a good, if you have a mentor or one of those sort of close prayer buddy friendships, this might be a good one to visit with them. So often we ask, you know, 
So how's that working out for me? How's the new job working out for me? How's the new whatever working out for me? What about the better question could be, how is my life working out for those around me? And if you don't know, if, you don't, if you're not confident of an answer to that, you could just go and ask them. <laughs> those people closest to you, how is my life working out for you? Am I helping you become that flourished, wonderful version of yourself? Or am I deeply frustrating and tripping you up in all sorts of ways? It matters, this love that we are called to participate in, to reflect, to enjoy, to, to grow within. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's start to pray. Let's be aware, first and foremost, of this, this great love that beats for us. And it's under the surface. But it's so real. This love that is older than 4.5 billion years old. This love that goes on. And so Holy Spirit, come renew, refresh, reset our imaginations, comfort troubled hearts. Come Holy Spirit. And God, our heartfelt prayers that this church, all that we are together, all that we set up, all that we organize and plan and, and work towards, that it would be a useful climbing frame for souls to come alive. Lord, let it be. We pray that every, every meeting, every moment might be part of a great big framework in which we can meet this great love that you have for us again, which you can change us, which you can show us that bit more. Lord, let it be.
And we pray that this climbing frame of all saints may support opportunity after opportunity for us to actually meet other people. For actual friendship to develop. And for more and more of that Jesus-style love to take shape amongst us. The love that bravely takes the initiative and does whatever it takes for the deep flourishing of the other. So come and speak your words of inspiration, comfort, possibility, and joy deep into hearts this morning, we pray. Let's take a moment to continue tuning in, to continue to listen. Continue to imagine what it's like to be around you, to be the person who inherits the consequences of your words, your actions. Lord, help us. Lord, heal us. Lord, lead us on.